There's a guy about 500 years ago that did that um, to the point that he didn't just wish it wasn't there. He actually took an entire book out of the Bible and kind of ripped it out of his Bible. Uh, 500 years ago, he didn't have Bible like we do, but he said, you know what, that's not part of scripture. I'm not going to pay any attention to that. It was a crazy thing, an entire book he didn't think could, could be trusted. You know what that book was? That book was the book of James, the, this book that we're studying right now. We've been studying for the last two months to say, James is the book that describes what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. James fleshes that out for it. And, th- and there was this guy 500 years ago that said, nah, that's not scripture at all. You know who the guy was? Martin Luther. Not, not, not the guy who had the dream and, and did the speech, okay? Not Martin Luther King Jr., not that guy. But Martin Luther, 500 years ago, he was a monk. And as he read the Bible, as he read the book of James, he said, I don't think that's, I don't think that that's really consistent with the rest of Scripture. And what I want to do is kind of set the stage to help you understand why that was the case. And in order to do that, we're going to take a, uh, a step into Simon and Peabody's um, way back machine. All right? Good stuff to get a little historical context. First century, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, right? He grows up, he begins to do ministry. Ultimately, he's crucified on on the cross. And he's buried and raised to life again. He ascends into heaven. And um, right after that, day of Pentecost, the church starts. And the church grows and and impacts uh, the world. Uh, Initially, the the church is... um, is, is, uh, is made examples, they're, they're persecuted. And, and as a result of that persecution, the church spreads all over the world. And the church begins to grow and, and do stuff. Um, it's known throughout the world in, in what we think of, you know, from, from uh, the time of Christ, for, from the first century up into the, into the Middle Ages, into the, the middle part uh, of our history. In 1054, something significant happened historically. And it was the separation of the Eastern Church and the Western Church. The Western Church had its capital in Rome. Okay, it was known as the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic meant universal. That was what that word meant. So it was the one church. In the east was the Greek Orthodox Church, a different kind of center, a little bit different kind of of, um, liturgy and worship style, a little bit different perspective. But that was the first real break um, in the church, 1054. You fast forward and you go into the Middle Ages, Um, And as time went on, the church, the Holy Catholic Church, really became the entity that shaped all of history in the Middle Ages. Um, At that point in time, people were poor. Literacy rates were incredibly low. In any, um, what what they would have said as developed countries, um, the, the highest literacy rate at that point in time was 20%. Worldwide, Literacy rate was less than 20%. So the people who could read and write were only the elite of society and the priests, the, the people who were in power in the church. And so for anybody who wanted to have a relationship with God, they had to go through the priest to understand what God's word said. There wasn't Christian radio that they could turn on, right? There wasn't Christian television, all they knew was what the priest told them. The scripture had been translated, the scripture, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, right? 
Old Testament in Hebrew, and, um, and it had been translated into Latin, what, what's called the Latin Vulgate. And those, uh, those three languages, in order to know God's word, you had to know those three languages, or one of the three at least. And so Luther is born, he's, he's raised in a family, and, and he is uh, raised to uh, learn to read and write. He learns um, Latin, and, um, and his father wants him to be a lawyer. And so uh, he's pursuing law and, uh, and is on a journey, is almost hit by lightning. He's, he's out in the middle of a storm, lightning strikes very close to him, and Luther took it as a sign from God that he needed to give his life to him completely. And so Luther changed, turned his back on the study of law and, uh, and became a monk, uh, went into a monastery and began to study scripture. Um, uh, through that process, he had an active faith. It, w- it was a live faith. He was trying to figure out what it was, what it looked like to live for Jesus. And as he studied scripture, he discovered that lots of stuff that existed in the church that he was a part of, uh, he just wasn't really sure about. In 1511, his monastery sends him to Rome, which is the center of the universe for the Catholic Church, right? That's where the Pope is, Cardinals, all of the stuff is there. Uh, He goes to Rome on behalf of his monastery, and as he travels and gets closer and closer to Rome, he becomes more and more disillusioned because at every place he stops and stays in a monastery, what he discovers is the priests there don't really have any kind of real faith at all. They're just kind of going through the motions. They're in position because of the church's political power, the church's governmental power, the church's financial power. They're just there, and nobody's really connecting with God at all. Luther gets to Rome, and in Rome, he's incredibly disillusioned by the moral decay that exists in the city and in the church. Uh, If you can think, if you've never been to Washington, D.C., and you, and you have an opportunity to go. For most people, when they go to D.C. for the first time, there's this sense of anticipation, right? You drive into the city, and you, and you see the Lincoln Memorial. You see the Washington Monument. And it's, there's this sense, this is my country. This is cool. This is so great. That's what Luther had as he came to Rome. And when he encountered it and saw how corrupt it was, he was devastated. That was in 1511. By 1517, Luther had studied to the point that, that he said, you know what, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we just need to fix in the church. Luther wasn't trying to start a new branch of Christianity. He wasn't trying to do anything. But in, in 1517, 500 years ago, just a couple of weeks ago, October 31st, he, he, um, he had a paper that he had written down 95 things that he wanted to discuss with anybody who would discuss them. The 95 theses. And he nailed them on the door of, of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And, um, and uh, we know that as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Luther's theses, his 95 theses, were really primarily about two things. Two, there were two themes that drove everything. The first was the authority of Scripture. Luther said, uh, he came to the conclusion to say, you know what, what the church says and does, that, it matters, but it's secondary to what Scripture says. Scripture is of primary importance because that's the way that we can know exactly what God wants from us. We, that's the way that we know how we can have a relationship with God. And as a result of, of that commitment from Luther and from others, um, the Bible began to be translated into the language of normal people. 
Luther translated scripture into German. Um, the, it was translated um, into English by Huss. Uh, that began to happen in some incredible cool ways that impact us still today. Have you ever wondered why there is such a high commitment to literacy in the United States? It's because in the founding of our country, there was a deep commitment for everyone to learn to read and write so that they could read the Bible and understand who God is personally. It wasn't from any secular standpoint. It was so people could understand Scripture. That's, that's a, a part of the influence of Luther 500 years later. The other thing that Luther, the, the other theme that was a part of his 95 Theses was all of the practices that existed in the church at that point in time. The Catholic Church, the universal church, was in charge of everything. And so to have a relationship with God, you had to go through the, through the church. You had to go through the priest to have your sins forgiven. You had to go through the priest to be married or buried. And there was a price associated with each of those things. If, if you sinned in order to, to be granted penance for that sin to be forgiven by the priest, the priest would tell you to do something or to buy something. And they, they had a system that, there was an interesting system called indulgences. You could buy an indulgence for your sin. So you could indulge in the sin, but still have it be forgiven. It was a great thing for the church because the church got rich, right? Because everybody sins. And the only way you could have your sins forgiven was through the church, buying that indulgence. And if you didn't have a relationship with God, it was a pretty great thing for you too to make everything okay in your, in your brain. So he said, oh, you know what, I want that. I'm going to go steal it. That's going to cost me this much when I go to the priest. That's still a good deal. I'm going to go do that. It, it was a system that you could, through works, have a relationship with God. And Luther, uh, as he began to read scripture, uh, he, uh, particularly the book of Romans, he said, you know what, that's not what it's about at all. It's about faith and grace. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, um, Luther heard these words. Let me, let, let me just tell his conclusion first, and then we'll go to Ephesians chapter 2. His conclusion was, you can't buy, achieve, or earn a relationship with God. There's nothing that you can do. A right relationship with God is only possible because of the grace of God. That was revolutionary because he lived in a works-based system where you were always trying to earn your way into God's presence. You buy the right stuff, you say the right things, you do the right stuff, then you, can, then you can be okay with God. And what Luther discovered as he studied scripture was, no, it's only through grace that we can have a right relationship with God. Good works won't do it. Luther read in Ephesians chapter two, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Does that verse sound familiar? If you've been around, we, man, we hammered that together uh, week after week in the Moore series. We are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. Our, our salvation only comes by the grace of God. Don't miss that. That's the most critical piece in today's message. God's goodness is what allows us to have a relationship with him. But our faith, our faith is what endorses God's grace in our life. 
Picture, if you will, imagine, if you will, that God in his grace, as an expression of his grace, that God has written you a check for $100 million. Can you imagine that? $100 million, that's incredibly cool. God has written you this check. And you take that check and you put it on your dresser and it stays there. And you say, wow, God has been so good to me. There's that check. Every day you see that check for $100 million. That's so good. That's so good. And just hang on to the check. God's grace is there for you. He's given you the ability to to impact hundreds, thousands of lives, to have your life changed, to have your history changed, all with that check. And you just look at it and watch it every day and say, oh, that's good. It's not until we endorse the check, right, that our life begins to change. When we sign off that check, when our faith activates God's grace in our life, that's where life begins to change. Our faith activates God's grace. It endorses it. Um, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, it's by grace that you're saved through faith. Our faith allows us to accept that grace and to have it be a part of our lives. Um, Luther read in, in, in Romans 4, if you've got uh, your Bibles out and, and just want to look at a big section of Scripture, I'm not going to read it all, but in Romans 4, uh, at the beginning in verse 18, Paul begins to describe uh, what happened to Abraham. And it says that ultimately Abraham, as he sacrificed his son, uh, as he believed and accepted the promise of God that, that Sarah was going to have a baby, that, that he was justified because of his faith because he believed that God would do what he said and acted on it. uh, Chapter five, verse one says, um, that's not true just of Abraham, it's true of us as well. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith allows us to live at peace with God because we've been justified as we've accepted God's grace, endorsed the check, and allowed it to take root in our life. The writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Does that sound familiar as well? That's from the Ugly Faith series. Almost every week we talked about that as well. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is the thing that endorses God's grace in our life. Luther absolutely had it right. So what was the big, uh, Luther, Luther got it, that we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace that's activated by faith. So what was the big deal with the book of James with him? Why, would, why did he want to throw it out? It's this passage that we're going to look at today from the book of James. Um, if, if you don't have a Bible, uh, be sure and grab one out of the back of the pew, open your, your smartphone, whatever. Turn to James chapter 2, verse 14. And let's read together a, a longer passage of Scripture. And this is a significant part of, of why Luther said, ah, I, don't, I don't like James at all. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without, is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, for their body what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, 
Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works, I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder or tremble. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Luther read that and said, wait, 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 wait a second. Romans 5 says Abraham was justified by faith. That can't be right. How can he be justified by faith? And James says he's justified by works. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? James says, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. It came to full fruition, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The heart of what James says in James chapter 2 is this. Faith that is not put into action is not real faith. Faith that is not put into action is not real faith. It's so easy for us to say in our culture, part of, part of um, Luther's commitment um, that's, that still impacts us, his commitment to faith alone, is that we in our culture have said, what's it mean to follow Jesus? It means that somebody gives an invitation and you raise your hand or you pray a prayer. And that's it. You're done. So, you know, you go out and you say, oh, yeah, we had 5,000 decisions for Christ. 5,000 people raised their hands. That's part of the result of Luther's influence on us still today. And James says, no, 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 no. We are saved by grace through faith. But it's got to show itself in works. Faith that is not expressed in the things that we do is not real faith. It's not enough to have this mental assent that says, yeah, I believe that God is who he said he is. I believe that Jesus came to earth and died for me. I, I believe, well, I believe in heaven and hell, but it never impacts your life. That's not enough is what James says. James says, even the demons believe that and tremble. When you read through the New Testament, through the Gospels, and you, and you look at the encounters that Jesus had with demons, the demons always said, you're the son of God. We know who you are. Please don't throw us into the pit. Don't send us away. The demons recognized who Jesus was. But that belief didn't express itself in faith that was activated into works. It didn't change their lives. Our faith has got to be put into action. I, I, I thought it was interesting that this passage of Scripture fit with, uh, with where we are uh, in this time frame. Yesterday's Veterans Day. And, uh, you know, it's easy for me to say, I love our country. I, I love having a chance to live in the United States. I'm, I, I would describe myself as a patriot. It's a completely different thing for me than it is for someone who's a veteran, who served, who went 
overseas who did and put their life on the line, who put their faith into action, who put their patriotism into action. One of the things that I, it's just so interesting to me to read, World War II after Pearl Harbor was bombed, um, the, the population almost in mass um, enlisted in the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines. That They all, all enlisted because the country was in danger. They put their faith into action because of what was going on around. Understand that you can't be a disciple without putting your faith into action. This series is all about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus, um, to be changed by Jesus, to be committed to the mission of Jesus. You can't be a disciple of Jesus without putting your faith into action. Last Sunday, we asked everybody to, to respond to the vision that, we, that we've been talking about for about a year to impact 50,000 people in five years with the grace of Jesus. Um, I had a great morning, Wednesday morning, going through those cards and reading people's response. It, it was so cool to see some, you know, some people would have one or two or five or ten, uh, some in the hundreds, whatever, that, that would do it. Some had, had uh, tally marks, so it was, you know, one, two, three, four, five, as they're kind of going through, keeping track. Incredibly cool. A few had the names of the people that they had impacted with the grace of Jesus. That's, that's just so cool. 135 individuals turned in notes. The number turned in last week was 4,677 people impacted with the grace of Jesus. Over the last year, that, that number is around 9,800. That's way cool. Way cool. Um, not, again, that's not uh, celebrating oh, who we are because God knows exactly what that number is. God knows what's, how he's using us. But I said last week, man, we, we need to kind of keep track so that we make sure that we're looking outside of ourselves and not just taking care of our own stuff. If God's grace is that $100 million check and our faith endorses that check, it activates that check, um, our works are what puts that money into action to change lives. You know, if, if I take that $100 million check and I endorse it and I collect all that cash and I bring it home and put it in a safe in my basement, it's, just so you know, I don't have that money. I don't have a safe in my basement. It's, it's all good, all right? Uh, if, if I do all that and my life never changes, it doesn't change the lives of my kids, of my friends, of the church, I've got $100 million in cash in my basement. Nothing's any different. Our Actions, our works, are what put our faith into place to impact the world and to change it. Um, this weekend at, at DeWitt High School, uh, they're, they're performing The Music Man, and our son is a part of the, of the cast. And so that means that we've seen The Music Man Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and we'll go see it this afternoon as well. That's what parents do, right? Cool, cool deal. In The Music Man, if you know that show, Professor Harold Hill uh, comes to swindle the town, goes through the deal, gets, uh, has the people buy instruments, takes their money, but he doesn't know how to teach them how to play their instruments. He uses what's called the think system. They get their instruments and he says, you need to think about the music. You need to think about the minuet in G. And then you can just learn how to play it. You don't ever have to practice. You just think about it. Um, it occurred to me uh, in the show on Friday night that's the way many of us approach our faith. 
We think about God. We think about the kingdom. But we never take our instrument out of the case. We never begin to put into practice what we know. We think about it, but it never impacts the way that we live. Sounds kind of like a football team yesterday. I, I can only say that because that was true of Ohio State a week ago, right? Um, it's, it's so easy to just think about stuff and never live it out. Here's, here's the challenge today. Real simple. If you see a need, meet it. Faith without works is dead. You've got, your faith has got to be put into action in order for it to be real. And the way that you do that is not by big, grandiose plans. It's just simply by seeing a need and meeting it. James says, you know what? If you see a brother who's hungry, who's in need of clothing, and you say, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and you don't do anything, your faith is dead. It doesn't mean anything. When you see a need, meet it. Um, You know, a real practical thing, Thanksgiving's coming in a couple of weeks. I want to just challenge you. If you know people who have recently gone through a divorce, Um, people who have just moved to the area, people who are here all by themselves, invite them to your house for Thanksgiving dinner. Real simple thing, because being alone during the holidays stinks. See a need and meet it. In just a few weeks, uh, uh, two weeks, three weeks, we're going to have a chance here to have Michigan blood here, a chance to donate blood. We know intellectually people need blood, right? Accidents. All kinds of stuff. People need blood. We have blood, right? But I'm afraid of needles. Yeah, I know. And uh, it may not fit in our schedule. See a need and meet it. I want to to challenge you just real directly. Go, Go back, sign up, sign up online, whatever. Donate blood. See a need and meet it. Don't say, oh, yeah, somebody's gonna give blood. Somebody's gonna help meet that need. As we approach Christmas, there's going to be opportunity to buy Christmas presents for children whose parents are incarcerated, to buy Christmas presents for for kids who may not have very much at at Rotunda. Um, There's incredible opportunities for us. See a need and meet it. Um, One of my favorite stories is uh, from Tony Campolo. It's about 30 years ago. Campolo was speaking all over the country, and um, he was scheduled to to, uh, speak for a woman's day of prayer, and he forgot about it. Uh, His office called him and said, hey, you're supposed to go. So he rushes over. His mind's just kind of a mess. Lady gets up, and she says, before Tony comes to speak, I want to read this letter from a missionary. She reads the letter. There's a $5,000 need from this mission, and she, she reads the whole letter, and says to Campolo, hey, Tony, would you pray that God would provide for this need? And Campolo said, no. And she said, no, would you pray that God would provide this, this need? And Campolo said, I don't know why I did it. My mind was in all kinds of places. But I said, no. Um, he said, I'll tell you what. I think God can help meet that need right now here today. He said, I'm going to take all the money I have in my pocket and put it on this table. And then we're all going to do the exact same thing. He said it was a good day because he only had $2.25 in his pocket. Um, So he pulls out $2.25 and says, okay, we're started. And and to the lady in charge, she said, take the money that you have in your purse, no checks, none of that stuff, just cash that you have. And and she hemmed and hawed. And he said, no, really, I'm being serious. She put out $110. And he said, okay, we have $112.25. 
And they proceeded with a thousand women to have them file by the table, providing, uh, giving the cash that they had with them at that point in time. The total was over $7,000. Campolo said, it doesn't make sense to pray for God to provide when he has already given us what we need. See a need and meet it. Well, what we're going to do right now, just as we finish the service, is uh, uh, every couple, three months, we have a uh, benevolence offering. The benevolence offering goes to special needs that exist here at North Point and here in our area locally. We have a benevolence team that screens those needs. It's an incredibly cool thing. I wish I had time to tell you stories. Uh, recently, we just helped a woman whose, whose husband had died, and she was just being buried in um, the expenses associated with the funeral. To be able to help meet those needs, incredibly cool. Earlier this year, there was a... There was a uh, a family that we heard about that was just, um, they, they, were, they were drowning in utility bills. And um, uh, our benevolence team went to meet with them. And what they discovered as they met with them and talked about the, the financial need that they had was that their door was broken. And so when the wind would blow during the winter, it would blow the door open and fill the house with cold air. No wonder their utility bills were so, so high. The benevolence team was able to help mobilize some people to help fix that door and not just meet the financial needs, but to help take care of that family. Um, the, the benevolence offering goes to needs that are local, and I, I just want to encourage you to give. I'm not asking you to give all the cash you have in your pocket. Um, I'm just asking you to give. You can give with cash, check, whatever. If you want to go online right now with your phone and do it that way, just mark it benevolence offering, and it'll go 100% the needs of people who, who are here locally. Guys, go ahead and come down. Usher's coming, and, and we'll take that. Let me, let me talk just for a second. You know, giving an offering is relatively easy. Uh, the, the amount of pain that we'll feel right now in giving for the benevolence offering, uh, probably the greatest amount of pain will mean that, oh, I was going to go out to eat on that money today, and instead I'm going to go home and have peanut butter and jelly. The, the pain's pretty temporary. But when you see a need in the life of someone around you and you decide to meet that, it might involve a lot more sacrifice than just a temporary little bit of money. It may mean that, that you invest in them. It's going to cost uh, time, uh, lots of time. It's going to cost money, significant money. It's going to cost some emotional churn in, in you as you come alongside them. If you see a need meet it. Don't say go. Be warm and be filled. Faith without works is dead. James says this in chapter 1. Prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. One of the, things that, uh, one of the other things that Luther had trouble with was that particular section of Scripture. Because when you read what Paul writes about the law in the book of Romans, the law is a burden. 
There are all these rules that you have to obey, and it's a taskmaster, Paul says. And James describes the law as the law of liberty. How can that be true? It's this. The law helps us discover the heart of God. It helps us understand who he is, what his character is like. And when we understand who God is, all of a sudden it's easy to say yes. I'll help meet that need. Because as Jesus comes in and takes over us, we respond in the way that Jesus would. Um, Man, I'm so grateful for Martin Luther. I'm so grateful for the impact that he has had on us. I'm so grateful for James, Jesus' half-brother, and how he encourages us to live out our faith on a daily basis. Let me pray. God, God, I just ask that you'd help us. Um, Lord, I know that the application of today's message is as diverse as every person who's here. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would help us see needs around us, help us to not be oblivious. And God, that you would give us the courage and the recognition to act on those needs, to help meet those needs in the name of Jesus. God, that it would not come with any sense of trying to earn our way into your good favor, not trying to, not trying to um, brown nose or anything like that. that, that it would just simply, God, be the reflection of our love for you and for the people around us, that it, would, that it would flow freely because of the grace that we've received through Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, let's sing. Thank you.